0: Dan and I have just had a little girl, which makes it even more important knowing that she can hopefully grow up in a world where women are celebrated in every single shape, every single size, no matter where you're from, no what what your story is, where you've been. Um, there's a brand out there that can speak to you just in a normal, authentic way that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable.
1: Welcome to Shopify Masters, your companion for starting and building a business, the podcast brought to you by Shopify. I'm Shuang Esther Shan, and today's episode features Dan M.L. Marston, the life and business partners behind Lounge Underwear, a multi 1000000 directed consumer giant that's challenging the intimates and loungewear industry. You'll hear from ML as they share how they designed Lounge specifically to succeed in e-commerce, their commitments to sustainability and inclusivity, as well as how they're expanding the team while maintaining its core values and culture. Before we chat with DanML, I wanted to chat with you about shipping. Did you know that you can buy shipping labels at home, print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance within the United States, and receive discounted shipping rates with certain carriers all with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, carrier account, or app required. This is included with your Shopify plan. So check out Shopify shipping today at shopify.com ship. Now onto our show. Lounge has been in the news lately because of its successful 2020. The team reached close to $19 million in sales, a 300% increase from the year prior, and they also expanded from 20 to 80 employees. But at the heart of it all is Dan and Mel, the husband and wife team that wants to build a business with impact. And they did so by specifically creating a business model that was geared towards social media and e-commerce.
2: I think the way uh, Lounge was built was very different to um other companies that were built at a similar kind of time around I guess the boom of social media and these social media brands because I think a lot of other companies were built around people finding, you know, a kind of a gap in the market where they couldn't find a product that was perfectly fitted to them or suited to them or just something that they were generally passionate about. Lounge was built in like I say a different way because I'd started up a load of businesses before Lounge and essentially took learnings from all of those. So lounge was reverse engineered because we knew the perfect way to market a product, but we didn't have that perfect product. So there was loads of criteria that went into it. So it had to be small to ship, even down to the like the granular element. It had to go into what was classed at the time as a large letter royal mail. So we could go globally for relatively cheap. It had to be brandable. So when people posted in it in social media, you knew who it was. Had to have large margins because we didn't have any money at the time and didn't have any outside investment. Had to be cheap to store because we didn't have any uh, offices or warehouses at the time. Loads of criteria. And it just so happened that it was underwear and the first triangle design that we sketched up fit around that marketing strategy perfectly. This is kind of a story of two halves. So you've got those, those business foundations and then you've got... Which is, which is Mel's side, the kind of brand and community and female empowerment side. But admittedly, in the early days, it was about building a solid business, which in turn allowed Mel to obviously build this amazing female community. But it is very much a, a story of kind of two halves.
0: We essentially built meaning and, and realized what we wanted our values to be over time. The, the name lounge was battered around and then we kind of laughed when we came up with the name because we were literally sat in our living room and we, and it was like, oh lounge. Yeah, that, that, that's it. That's the one. And I guess that kind of story of female empowerment and, and inviting our community into this space that they felt safe and they felt like they were with their best friends, even though it was in a social space um, that came and has developed and evolved as the brand has essentially. And I guess we've been, scaling at such a pace, the way that that journey has happened and the the values that we can now share with massive social media and wider community has become really powerful.
1: And I understand you saying that underwear is such an easy to ship item, but entering this market should it ever feel intimidating because there's already established global brands, there's department stores, you name it. So entering this very saturated market, how did you plan to differentiate your products and your service?
2: Uh, a lot of people obviously say it's a very saturated market. I think when we started and even probably more so now, short of one or two brands, it doesn't feel like there's, there's any competition out there. Like I say, five years ago, there wasn't anyone. Obviously, Victoria's Secret's are the big boys and they're in in decline. Short of that, every underwear brand out there feels very archaic. It doesn't feel like they've got a strong brand. A lot of them feel like they're in a mess. They don't know who they cater for. It didn't, and it still doesn't, like I say, short of one or two now, feel like there's any competition, which I think is what makes Lounge so exciting for everyone that works here because it feels like we're scratching the surface and doesn't feel like we're in a space where it's like, how are we going to compete with these guys?
0: But I do think that's kind of the underlying beauty of Dan's personality as well, is that this sounds so cheesy as we were a couple, but he isn't scared. He isn't scared of anything. So it kind of means the way we started our journey was with this really calm, but underlying confidence that this is go, we will make this work between you and I with your yin, I'm yang, we're going to build something powerful here.
1: And speaking of figuring it out, because I understand Mel, you have journalism, branding background, and Dan has the business operation background, but the two of you actually didn't have design or fashion background. So how did you start to tackled that aspect of the business in design and production?
0: Uh, it's a good question. I think we're both very in tune anyway as a couple. And although we don't have a design background, we've you know, we've got good taste, right? So it meant that we knew what we wanted our product to look like. We know what women wanted and we knew what what, you know, what do I like, what might our community like. Um, and it started with literally just sketches on scrap pieces of paper, didn't it, Dan?
2: Me and Mel have got very similar tastes in regards to which obviously flows through the brand. And even now, I think with the design team, I'll say to them, I don't know what it is that we need, but when I see it, I'll know. I think one of the beauties around the fact of almost, I guess, being inexperienced and naive to an extent is that you then you don't follow the trends of everyone else. I think if you bought up through another, through another company... You get, in, you get stuck in their ways, whereas because we, we didn't have any experience, everything we did was so fresh. And it's like from the bat, we didn't do uh, spring, summer, autumn, winter collections. Our collections last f- forever. And I think that might have been probably a bit of a, a different strategy of what a lot of people do. there, we were bringing out seasons, they'd sell out, they'd bring out another collection. We don't do that. We don't work that way because we weren't brought up in a, a fashion background, I guess.
1: That makes a lot of sense because essentially you are asking for designs or you're designing things that you wanted to see, but it just so happens weren't in the market.
0: Five years on, we're still so ingrained in that kind of design element of the brand to ensure that that vision that we had from day one doesn't get lost in then looking around and seeing what's going uh, elsewhere in the market, we stay very focused on what it is that we want Lounge to be and what we want Lounge to offer.
2: We don't follow trends in any essence. So we don't follow any kind of... catwalks. We still to this day, which was right, right from the early days, we just build what we think is cool and design what we thinks cool and still go with that same strategy. We don't get influenced by anyone. So we just do what we want to do.
1: So after those initial designs and you're ready to start the store and start selling, how did you convince people to start buying their undergarments online and on your website?
2: In the very early days, it was influencer marketing and pure influencer marketing. Bear in mind, the landscape of influencer marketing was totally different five years ago to what it is now. We were very lucky in regards to we were bought up in a time where e was blowing up and then social media joined it and was blowing up. And obviously we've done a lot of things right and I think we're very good at a lot of things. But timing plays a massive part in any company that grows at our rate. And we had very good time in regards to there was a space in the market, I feel anyway, and I feel there st- still is because I don't feel like there's massive competition. You had social media that was about to boom or was in the middle of booming. And then e it all just, <laughs> uh, I guess, exploded at the same time. <laughs>
0: And it kind of goes back to what Dan said at the beginning of making sure that as soon as you saw that product on the influencer, you knew exactly what it was. That brand recognition was just there instantly. And that was part of that power that allowed us to then build upwards from there. Mm -hmm.
1: Your influencer marketing is so extensive because I feel like it's difficult for someone to not see lounge underwear on Instagram. And it's hard to imagine you had to build that from scratch. So how did you start building this inclusive and empowering community of influencers?
2: So five years ago, we didn't have any money. There was very, very few brands, literally a handful that were doing influence marketing. So we could essentially test and learn from that space with little to no money, essentially just gifting product at that time. Like I said, completely different to what it is now and just test and learn. So you could try and figure out what type of account worked, with no real investment if you came into it now you'd need to have a hell of a lot of knowledge of what you were doing it was the marketing and a hell of a lot of money it's just totally different we were very lucky to be in a space that was very new and essentially test it before it boomed it was just it was just totally different and obviously now we've managed to build a massive knowledge base over 5 years in the early days without putting huge amounts of investment in and it's just scaled and we've been able to scale that knowledge that investment as social media scaled. Mm.
0: It's an element of um, I think consistency is the right word but making sure that from day one we built relationships with these these influencers that were just young women at the time they were still learning what it meant for them as well but we introduced ourselves personally we explained the brand to them and we tried to build a connection from the very beginning so even now some of the girls that we worked with right at the beginning of our journey they feel so deeply rooted and connected to what our values are now that the relationships just so authentic and that then promoting our product just comes naturally to them because they actually love the product it's not like god how am i going to find a way to show that i kind of like this and i guess making sure that that relationship was built right from the foundations through to where we are now was really really important Mm -hmm.
1: And how did you manage, I guess, tracking so many relationships as you scale? There's, I want to say, like countless influencers. It seems like everybody is posting with their lounge clothing. So how did you track all those relationships, make sure that everything was sent to the right person and it's performing the way that you want it to be?
0: That's the secret. (laughs) Don't don't give away the secret.
2: (laughs) (laughs) In the early days, we used to track it in regards to like sending out shipments and tracking if people posted literally by hand manually just from a database. Me and Mel used to have almost like a traffic light system.
0: Mm, we sat back to back with a different little database with Yeah. Different different influences.
2: Um literally just an Excel document. And then in in regards to like an ROI, this this is the real tricky bit because there's still no perfect attribution system in regards to influence marketing. There's there's obviously ways and means around it. Some obvious ones like discount codes or affiliate links or swipe up links and stories. But this is where again, because we were growing up in this time, you've got the knowledge and the experience of what works and what doesn't work and to a degree it comes down to making a call off the back of that experience of what you think works and doesn't work if you haven't got a perfect you know attribution model and pixel like you can on facebook or instagram you have got to make a judgment call to an extent and think are they going to add value to my brand Bear in mind it's not always just a monetary value it's a brand piece as well as an roi piece
0: definitely
1: yeah and I can see that the relationship goes beyond just like them receiving a parcel and doing a campaign because influencers will tag you guys after the link expires or after the campaign and they continue to post you guys and tag you guys so it kind of adds to the brand value over time
0: the best feeling obviously seeing from the early days when you used to see an influencer posting your product you'd be like oh my god that's what we designed but now the goodness comes when you see someone just organically wearing it it might just be peeking out of a sheer blouse or like you see it kind of poking out the top of their jeans and you think oh they genuinely do they love the product which makes our whole strategy just that much easier
2: i think going back to the relationships piece as well is that there's very few influencers that we work with just on a one-off basis. Um, we, we tend to work on extended long contracts to actually build that authentication, I guess. that it, This isn't just a business deal. It's got no value to it. We'd like to say, we're trying to build a relationship with these guys and show that they have bought into the brand and it's not just a one-off deal. I think that's where the real value comes into it.
1: And in addition to this program, you also just have inclusivity within your product offering, your branding and empowerment. What is it is so... Ab- important for you guys to make sure that it represents a very inclusive and safe community as well.
0: The way the brand was started to where we are now, it's, you know, we've been on a huge journey. But I think we wanted to offer more than just product. We didn't want to just offer underwear. It sits in your drawer and you don't really have any real connection to it. I think what we've created is what we call our female family. Um, At the end of the day, we are all different. And I think that sounds like such a basic statement. But as a young woman who's grown through a world where you don't love every single part of yourself, I think what Lounge has almost allowed me to do personally is grab my personality and push it out to a social audience is such a huge portion of women and kind of speak to them in a very real, just talk like you're talking to your friends and make sure that they, because you put underwear on every single day. You want to make sure that you feel amazing in it. And if you can then also feel part of something that is more than just that product, that's that's pretty powerful. And I mean, Dan and I have just had a little girl, which makes it even more important knowing that she can hopefully grow up in a world where women are celebrated in Every single shape, every single size, no matter where you're from, matter what, what your story is, where you've been. There's a brand out there that can speak to you just in a normal, authentic way that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable.
1: Beyond building an inclusive and body positive community, Dan and Mel wants to leave an impact on the way they run their business by sourcing sustainable materials while also using their platform to raise awareness and funds for breast cancer.
2: In regards to like a, um, a sustainability side of stuff, it's probably a, about 18 months ago now, we decided a brand that we were get into a size where we could start putting that investment into uh, that side of stuff. And I don't think it's... Well, we definitely don't do it from a point of view where we feel like we have to. I think we're very conscious in regards to contribute into helping the world, I guess. Yeah, and yeah, and the morals behind it. We made a conscious effort to say, okay, we're going to set ourselves some goals in regards to our product and packaging side of things. So, and I think within six months, we'd essentially moved all of our packaging from like virgin materials to either recycled or sustainable materials. So everything from the bags that the product went into, then the mailing bags to the swing tags to uh, the returns cards all went to. Sustainable options. And then we started to focus on the products and we're starting to now backdate all of our products to either recycled or uh, sustainable options, ideally recycled options, which a lot of it is. And then I think probably the past 12 months, about 60% of our product that we're launching is made again from sustainable or recycled products. But literally, I think it was a week ago, we've said to ourselves, listen, let's draw a line in the sand. Everything we launch from now on has got to be sustainable or, or made from recycled products. I think that's, as a brand, how, how passionate we feel about it. I think you can get a lot of companies that will say, you know, we've got a, a negative carbon footprint, but they'll just buy the credits associated with that, which is kind of like a cop out. But we're trying to make a conscious effort to actually make a difference as a brand. And uh like I say I think personally we actually feel quite passionate about it, not just from a from a from a corporate responsibility.
0: Definitely. I think we, we talk about it as a brand as kind of looking after our mother nature, looking after her, and that's almost inviting the world as such into our female family as she she is a woman and she looks after us. And I think as Dan said it, it feels it feels personal. I think the brand is so much bigger. The business is so much bigger than Dan and I now but I think some of those kind of deep-rooted decisions obviously naturally do still come from the two of us but we wanted to make sure at the same time that we didn't lose that luxury feel of our product so we didn't want to have to lose the quality and I think that it's been really challenging but really exciting at the same time to know that we're able to still offer such beautiful products packaging everything that we do is still really gorgeous and I think one really nice touch that we have an example of how we ensure people still feel that that value is so the the bags that the products that they now come in that you could then rip open and grab your product out they're obviously made from like a, a recycled plastic and it might essentially on the journey get a bit bruised and scratched and i think we've got i'm trying to think exactly what the phrase is but on the outside of the package we say something like um my marks and scars just mark a part of my journey to you and it's kind of reminding you as a woman that you know your stretch marks and your cellulite and all those natural things on your body are part of your journey and then we've kind of tied that into this green sustainability message um i think we're trying to make sure that people really engage with it and and notice it so that they think oh okay i'm actually contributing myself now as a customer to the planet which is really
2: cool it's also a real challenge being an underwear brand as well because i think there's a lot of developments in to suppliers that are going into general apparel everyday wear but there's not huge investment in regards to other companies going into laces embroideries that go into a bra because obviously the more companies that do it the more accessible this kind of stuff comes and the the more you know commercially viable it is at the moment we're taking massive hitch on our margins and not passing that onto the consumer we're actually swallowing that ourselves like I say, because not a lot not a lot of the big boys are doing it, it's still a very challenging thing to do, but totally worth it, obviously,
0: yeah, and being the brand that can lead the way in the underwear space for you know making a mark in you know for sustainability is golden ticket, really for us,
1: yeah especially for fashion, being one of a large polluter and using a lot of water and resources. So the fact that you are asking for these recycled materials, more sustainable materials is also going to shift the industry as well. So, yeah, really, really
2: excited. Exactly. One of the biggies as well is we're not fast fashion. We market ourselves as the opposite of fast fashion. So this isn't a case of buying, because obviously we, we sell apparel as well. This isn't a case of going to a fast fashion brand and grabbing something new every week. The idea behind us is that you buy something and it lasts, which massively contributes towards sustainability as well. Cause it's obviously creating less pollution in the world from the off. Yeah.
1: How do you guys pick different charities to support and align yourselves with an initiative?
0: I think, uh, so our Fill Your Breast campaign, which is, the campaign we run every October for breast cancer awareness. I suppose it feels natural as an underwear brand for one of the first kind of charitable campaigns that we that we ran for that to be around breast cancer awareness something obviously that's so poignant for women and men but proportionately more for women and I think that whole campaign essentially was built to raise awareness. We raised donations and we raised some inc- you know, incredible money for our two chosen charities Trek Stock and Copperfield but the awareness that we can then push out across you yes our social audience is just so powerful and I think again comes back to why we do our sustainability work as well is that it's personal to Dan and I and to be able to have that impact on on young women and make them kind of sit and think and realise how important this stuff is. I mean our, our audience is is really young and I think those people think that oh you're going to get breast cancer when you're old and there's this kind of rhetoric around it that is so false that the relationships that I personally built with the girls in that campaign that we now I work with every year that we call our legends they're just incredible women and I think they've all had these experiences themselves so to allow our brand to then speak out in such an, again that authentic voice that says look just you know sit back and think about this and, and check your boobs it just I don't know just I don't know how you would word it down but it just felt like it's something that we had to do it was a responsibility to make sure that our community were looking after their health i mean there's obviously other charitable campaigns that that we that we do that maybe we don't sing and, and shout about as as loudly as we do with our breast cancer awareness campaign we've got this huge voice now across social we need to make sure that we're using it in a in a responsible way
1: in a sense sharing the spotlight and the platform that you guys have
0: yeah exactly I know that you guys had
1: an actually historic year last year with all of us being at home. We all need some great, comfy loungewear. So, yeah, talk through some of the growing pains of last year because I know that as you're growing, you also had to deal with the logistics and the restrictions with COVID and everything like that. How did you manage 2020?
2: Yes, we've seen unprecedented growth that very few companies have experienced over the past five years, but the last 12 months has kind of just been a, a different animal. I think when you couple that with the fact, obviously, we've had COVID and COVID restrictions, it's been massively challenging from a logistical point of view, mainly. We're very lucky in the fact that we've got a, a really young workforce. I think we've probably got an average age of about 25, 26, maybe. So when we went into lockdown in the UK, pretty much of a flick of a switch everyone went to remote working in the office short of I think it was the uh, obviously the, the the warehouse guys had to had to still work because they couldn't do their their job from home but yeah with with overnight we went to remote working the next morning after we sent the the message out everyone came and grabbed their laptops and anything they need from the office and they've pretty much been remote working for I think the past 12 months and it was seamless. It's just insane, really, because before that, we were in-house five days a week. And to have a change like that, but no real stress on the the workforce or output as a brand is pretty magic. I think a testament to obviously the guys that that work here but then from the logistical point of view it's a whole new bunch of complications because you you physically need people to actually get that product out the door you've obviously got social distancing you've got massive problems with couriers because they've got the same issues in regards to people in space and that nightmare you've then got massive delays in regards to goods coming in on the seas and in the ports so we've just gone through a year where you've got massive logistical nightmares and we've grown over 250% up year on year, which is is just insane, really, especially when, especially when you're starting to get the, to the size and numbers that you're talking about that are actually going out the door every day. It's just like, a, a, again, I think it's testament to the to the team that work behind the scenes, essentially.
0: The magic for me, and I think the same for Dan, is the way that we've managed to retain our culture and the way that our, we call them our lounges, so our, our team, essentially. The way they have responded to the pandemic and essentially kept our business doing scaling at this crazy pace is is seriously impressive and i think something we're incredibly proud of but i think we've put a lot of effort as, as founders and a, with a few key people across the team such as our head of people georgia is to ensure that everyone still feels connected because that is really how we create what we do is the fact that our team are so damn good and i think you know we've done we've done yoga from home we've done tea at three which is where we all jump on with random groups because i too many of us also jump on one with a cup of tea because we we all love a good brew um and just chat and play games and be daft we've we've done dan's devilish dungeon quiz a couple of times which dan will kill me for saying but just making sure that our culture stays sound so that the moment we all step back into the office you know there's still that magic there between everyone but also we've recruited at such a crazy pace through the pandemic as well that we've over doubled the team would you say dan yeah. Um and that is due to demand obviously and due to the growth that we've had over that period. But to then make sure that all those people feel connected in in that group of lounges was was a challenge, but I think one that hopefully they'd all say they they've they've loved the experience even working at home. And I think something really exciting that is happening now is that we've just kind of expressed to everyone at work that we've made a decision to move into a bigger HQ and we'll be moving there sort of the early part of this summer. And now there's this real buzz amongst everyone that A, one day we're going to get back in the office and B, it's going to be this beautiful, shiny new glass building that is kind of built to be the best HQ in the world, essentially. It's been a really strange year, but one where I think everyone just comes out stronger, essentially.
1: I read that beautiful article where you're taking over the old Oracle building and there's going to be like a cinema, there's going to be a yoga studio. That's super exciting.
2: It's probably the biggest risk we've taken as a company to date. It's a, it's a huge, I guess, level up. Um, from a business point of view f- for us with obviously that comes with the, the overheads of running, uh, running a larger company. But this is uh, essentially future proof, uh, scalability as a brand, definitely in the UK. We've had, uh, massive growing pains where we, I think we've had five HQ moves in five years now, which is, which is a nightmare in itself. So this is a huge step up to, to kind of secure Lounge's future. And we're, we're investing massively in the facilities and the kind of culture that we can then breed at this new HQ. And it's putting an investment into, into the guys that, that work at Lounge and then also to attract that new world-class talent, which is inevitably going to be needed to where we want to get to as, as an ambitious brand that we are.
1: The ambition is getting fueled by new talents as Dan and Mel are planning to double their team this year. In addition to the new, exciting headquarters in United Kingdom, the duo also wants to set up offices in United States and Germany, all the while ensuring the team's culture and spirit are at the heart of their expansion.
2: It's definitely, this is quite a cliche in, in today's age, everyone seems to say the same thing, but it's definitely a culture first thing for us. Personally, I don't look at people's qualifications. It doesn't make a difference if you've been in a university or not. Um, we hire a lot of young people like I touched on earlier, but, um, it is very much, are you going to fit into the business, into the business from a cultural point of view? It, we're very lucky in that we've built this community of people that are so close and have created such amazing friendships that when you work here, it just feels like a really, I guess, energetic, energetic environment because everyone's friends. It doesn't feel like work. and I think that's one of the major uh, successes to Lounge's like growth because everyone's so passionate about their jobs. So it's a case of skills you can learn, right? But you can't learn to be a decent person. It's definitely a, a, a culture first thing for us.
0: Definitely. Couldn't have it better myself.
1: Nice growing the business, are there any apps or tools that you've really enjoyed building your store or just operating the business to make it more smoothly?
2: It depends on what stage I think you're talking about them in business. There's Obviously, there's different apps that we used when we were smaller to the size that we are now. But I think what Shopify allows you to do is essentially scale a business without millions being invested in.
0: We also didn't have a tech background. So Having Shopify at your fingertips that just allows us to kind of jump in, so easy to learn and create a pretty cool looking website, even from day one, obviously now it's completely evolved and changed. I think one thing we always say about Shopify is that there's a a lot of platforms that over the years we've outgrown and, you know, you have to kind of move on, move on, move on. But Shopify has literally seen us through and we know we can scale the same pace that we are now and, and some and Shopify will still be kind of at that core, really, which is makes everything super easy for
2: us. And there's apps that allow integrations to become a lot easier, like literally a simple plug-in, like with your accounting softwares and your CRM platforms. Most of them have partnerships with Shopify. So it's a case of downloading an app and just plugging it in, which is priceless again. But... Like I say, it depends because there was different apps that we used back in the early days to so the ones that we that we use now. We used um, in the early days even apps as small as I think it's called Orderly Emails, which allowed you to generate a, a packing list and an invoice
0: that we would then walk around with a piece of paper around the warehouse with the <laughs> with a couple of invoices and get make sure we sent the right thing to the right people. Because I think Launchpad is a big one in terms of an app that we rely on, I guess Dan, especially. As we start to scale and we start to launch more product, we used to do that very manually. And I would literally tick the products that we wanted to launch that particular time, make sure, right, okay, 7 p.m., click, go live. And now, obviously, Launchpad is great. You know, you can make sure that everything goes live all at once, and you've got this gorgeous, gorgeous launch because we're launching, you know, products a couple of times a month now.
2: Launchpad, I think those kind of things are becoming valuable as you start to scale and you start to build out localized stores. There becomes a point where you can't just manually do it. It's it's, it's relatively stressful when you got when you're managing one store and you're doing a, 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 a small launch. When you've got eight stores over a large collection that's going live, it's it's just physically impossible. You need those kind of technical capabilities.
0: Yeah, you walk into Black Friday with with uh, that kind of pressure, and wow, you would crack.
1: I wanted to ask about Black Friday. Actually, it's like one of the biggest sale periods for you guys. Um, How did you manage campaigns and also the logistics behind the scenes?
2: From a logistical side, it's very, very hard. We can do up to like 25% of our yearly revenue in a week. It's that concept around scaling up massively over such a short period of time. And a lot of it comes down to in distribution in these days, it's, it's a lot of it's still manpower. So it's how do you go from zero to 100 times that in 24 hours? It is, it's, a, it's a massive um, complication and, uh, and stress on, on businesses in our shoes. But I think these peaks around Black, Black Fridays are such a new problem as well. It's not like it's been going on for the last 50 years and people have come up with perfect solutions. They are still headaches and there are ultimately, even with the, the businesses that have got it down to a T, there are ultimately delays in those periods. You can't physically scale up a 1,000% overnight. It's just not possible there are going to be delays. But obviously, we're pretty damn good at distribution as a company. And we've we've had those growing pains over the last five years. But there is still an element of of, of delays. I don't think there'll be a way around that just because the sheer, the peaks are so high. But yeah, we do our best.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the pressure from the consumer at that time of year as well is is like wow if you if you if your website does crash or if your order does take x amount of time to get to that person it's evidential out there you see a lot of brands get their reputation just falls through the floor if you just have that one tiny error that happens throughout that sale period especially at the beginning of that sale so i think we put a huge amount of time throughout the you know you finish one black friday you're already thinking about right what the hell are we going to do next year <laughs> it's bonkers.
2: there is stress from a distribution point of view but more so in the the last couple of years is then the stress from uh, a technical point of view in just can your your site and systems that then essentially feed through to the warehouse can they cope with that level of traffic and that volume yeah. you'll find that if you haven't got the right systems in place um that are you know that that, that all connect to essentially put that product out the door if they can't cope with it, they'll they'll collapse, and then you've got a much bigger problem on your hands. It's actually putting that infrastructure in place from a from a tech stack point of view to cope with it. Not just a a case of actually being able to pack and get it out the door. That's obviously a whole new whole other problem in itself.
0: And then on top of that, you've got the fact that social is so instant, and we've built this community of people that feel like they can chat with us through DMs, through comments. We'll reply. We're there for them. We're here to chat. We're here to. Get, hear your feedback the minute you do anything wrong through that black friday week wow it's like bam that you know and we've obviously then got this full team of people that are there ready to make sure that you know people don't panic you, you know you you, you, you can't not going to disappear or whatever the questions are yeah bunkers. Has there been ever,
1: I guess, a challenge with pricing around Black Friday? Because I know that you want to have this perceived value for your customers, but you also want to make sure that it doesn't discount too much so that it takes and detracts away from your brand.
2: I don't think it's Black Friday that does that. I think this is where a lot of brands go wrong and they'll get themselves into a rut where they're going from sale to sale to sale. We do essentially that we do two big sales a year and that's it. We do Black Friday and our birthday sale. Short of that, we don't go into sale, which I think builds that brand reputation and that that kind of real value. That you're getting for you, for your product i think that's that is where a lot of company get into trouble where they'll 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 see quick wins when they're young and they're going into sales and they're making a lot of money and they'll start to do it more and more often and you totally lose your brand authenticate authentication the problem is your consumers cotton on and they won't buy unless you're in a sale because you're going into so often so they're waiting for the sales so you find that when you're not in sale you haven't got a business then you get you sale to sale to sale. <laughs> But yeah, we, we we're very strict in in that essence that we we're not. So we're not a fast fashion brand. We're we're not a, a a brand that runs on sales. We do two main ones a year, and that that's it.
1: I know that you guys are also looking to expand to America with an um, office, and as well as Germany. What are some things that you guys are prepping for as you're kind of expanding your footprint globally?
2: Um, I think one of the issues we're starting to come along with, especially with. Um, Places in Europe like Germany, France, and the US is that you can obviously you can target them from the from the UK and do a good job you can in regards to localization. But you can't really get their culture uh, unless you're actually German and you're living in Germany. You can't you can't mimic that. It's, It's very hard for us to understand the German way of doing things and who's popular and what's cool over there unless you're actually on the ground in Germany, it's it, it becomes a case where if you really want to break that market, you know, go big there, you need to be immersed in that market and you need to understand how things work. And you just can't do that from the UK and being brought up in the UK. Hence why off international offices start to build out.
0: Balance that, obviously, stay stay true to your core as a brand, but make sure that that tone of voice actually makes sense out there in that culture, um, whether that be in Germany, Dan said, or in the US or wherever that might be, um, having those boots on the ground actually out there in that space. Um, and even people within your team then that then are, you know, from that history, I guess, is that that's their, their livelihood was brought up there. It then allows you to really start to understand different cultures i guess
2: yeah you've got obvious challenges in the likes of france and germany because there's a language barrier but even if you go to the us where it's the same language they speak differently even when you go down to east and west coast it's the same language but the way they speak is differently it's it's getting that real localization where it feels like like a like a local brand
1: i wanted to ask you guys about working together as Life partners and how you intertwine personal professional lives so seamlessly together, good question
0: that everybody asked that before
2: to be honest with you never it's never you know, about a lot of couples that go into business and they they always seem to moan, but it never it's never really felt like a challenge to be honest with you because we've been doing this for five years now and, and work together every single day and live together but it, it doesn't seem to have caused us any problems. I think what helps is that we do very different parts of the business. <laughs> Because Mel's, like I say I was on, on the brand brand side and the creative side and I'm on more on the numbers and strategy um, and scaling side so what we do is is very different so we're not under each other's feet all the time I think that does make a, a big difference
0: I mean we knew each other back in primary school and then we've we, you know we've been together since we were teens and uh, prior to lounge we started a, a small fashion boutique together and I just I guess yeah it almost feels even weirder now because I'm now we've had a child together so I'm now working from home obviously with baby crying somewhere downstairs with my mom and that it that is now the bit that feels weird is that we're not together every day it feels really unnatural and kind of like losing a left arm
2: I, th- I think on the flip side in my eyes to get a brand like lounge off the ground and to scale it at the rate that we have you've truly got to got to live it it's a, it's a lifestyle it's not a job so if if my partner wasn't the other half of Lounge, I don't know how it would work because I don't know how how the other half would appreciate all the hours that go into it, day and night. Then you've got to come home and essentially still carry on working. It, it, it's okay for us because we're we're both under the same umbrella and we're both creating the same situation. But I, I don't know how how you how you'd balance that if the other one wasn't in the same shoes as you. I think it'd be you'd have to have a very understanding partner.
1: <laughs> so you guys started dating when you were teenagers but at which point did you feel like you know we could actually be business partners and we can actually work together
2: um i think so so what happened in the the really early days when mel came out of uni we started up a fashion brand that was essentially just bringing in in off the line dresses from china and we'd just sell them on ebay so it was it, it was it was a gradual process right and then we built a website with that brand and then then eventually started lounge so it was it wasn't just like you know like a a line in the sand it was it was gradual we started doing bits and bobs together and then eventually started lounge so it it was eased in (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: definitely do you have any like tips or suggestions for other couples who actually want to start a business together
2: like i say i i think if you're gonna go into it in my eyes i know a lot of people go on and on about um work life balance which which I totally agree is usually important but in the early days and if you're scaling a fast brand this is a lifestyle it's not a job it is day and night and that's the reality of it and it might not be a reality that a lot of people like
0: and i think as long as as a couple you've you've got to be prepared to challenge each other and i think we've been together for Dan, how long we've we been together do yeah, you remember 12 years 12 years yeah 12 years <laughs> um So you, over that time, you learn what buttons not to press from a, you know, on a personal level, you, you know, you know, where you stand, but from a a business point of view, a brand point of view, it's kind of, sometimes you've got to press those buttons to create what we, what we do. So I think understanding that challenging each other does actually create the magic that we, that we do at Lounge. I know Dan said that we're in different parts of the business, but there's also huge breadth of stuff that we work on together. Obviously that's, that's natural. Respect each other, know what you're good at. know where you overlap just ride the wave i guess
1: awesome well thank you so much dan and mel for being here with us today and i'm so excited to see what lounge does next
2: awesome thank you so much for having us
1: thank you so much it was great chatting with you Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Shopify Masters. My name is Shuang, and if you enjoyed Dan and Mel's business journey of starting and building lounge underwear, please give us a review on our listening platform so our show can be discovered by others. Until next time on Shopify Masters.